Well, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I got to say, this is probably my favorite. Well, I don't know, it's hard with Romans. This is one of my favorite passages in Romans because of the joyful nature of what Paul declares to us. This is one of the most joyful passages in the entire book of Romans. And this passage really is is key to understanding how to live your Christian life, how to say no to sin, and how to live to Christ. This, This is one of the central passages in the New Testament that helps us understand what does it mean to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. So let's turn in our Bibles. As we turn there, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word and worship him as we receive his word. This is God's holy inspired word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. Let's be seated. Father, we come to you, and God, I want to say thank you for this wonderful truth that we've been made dead to the power of sin, and we've been made alive to you in Christ Jesus. God, I pray that that truth would permeate our hearts and our minds. God, I pray that that truth would would enlighten and illuminate our minds. It would strike us, Lord, and I pray that that truth would move from an intellectual thing to to driving our passion, our desires, and we might present ourselves to you joyfully as a result. God, I pray that we would grasp what it means that we are no longer under the dominion of sin, but that we are now been set free and we are under your grace. I pray that you would enable us to walk in the newness of life that you give in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Back in 1974, um, it was when my wife was born, I was only a few years old, 
a guy named, uh, I guess, Hiru Unada. He emerged from the jungles of the Philippines. He was a second lieutenant in, in the Japanese army. And he had been in the jungles for 30 years. He had, he had been fighting the battle against the Allied forces since 1944, and he was still in the jungles. And he finally came out in 1974, but for 30 years, he thought he was still fighting a war that had already been decisively won. He was trained as an intelligence officer to gather intelligence on the Allied forces and then to subvert them to carry out guerrilla warfare. And so that's what he did. Um, He got to the base and about a month after he got there, the Allies overran the base and then they all separated and went into the jungle in, in groups of three or four. And most of the groups over the years that were in hiding after a year or two or three or four or five they drug out and they, they eventually found out that the war was really over and that, that the Americans or the Allied forces who were their biggest enemy were, were now their allies, their biggest ally. But this man, he continued to fight in the, in the jungle. He continued to assail the Filipinos in the towns around the island. Finally, There was a college student in 1974 that read about this guy like the existence of Bigfoot, this this mythical man who believed the war was still going on, who had been sighted every once in a while, come down and kill the cows of the the neighborhood to to get rid of their food. He would destroy the food crops. He would would come and blow stuff up. And he became this mythical creature that nobody really believed existed. And this college student said, you know, I'm going to go find him. So in 1974, he went on a trip to go find this guy. He, He meets him in the jungles. He describes to him that the war's over and what's happened in the last 30 years. He still doesn't believe him. He didn't come out then. He refused, no matter what he saw, what he heard, to believe. And over the years, leaflets had been dropped and all kinds of information had been put out there trying to get him to see it was over, but he refused to to live as if the war was over. And he was living actively like the war was still going on. Well, finally, this college student said, I'm going to go back and get the guy's major because the guy's major 30 years ago told him that don't leave the island unless I come and get you. And so this guy in Japan had been retired for 27 years. The college student went back and got him, took him to Lieutenant Onoda. And finally, he came out of the jungle in 1974. Sometimes, as believers, we're like Lieutenant Onoda. We, we think that the war with sin is still going, that we are still subject to sin, that we are still fighting against God. We, feel, we still feel that, that, that the decisive battle has not been won. We, we feel like, we act like as Christians, that the war, that Christ's defeat of sin has not really happened. We've been given the good truth, we've been given the good news, people have come to tell us, we've, we've received God's word, and yet we continue to live like it hasn't really happened. And that's often the case for, for us as believers. We can live as if. We can live as if we're still fighting on the wrong side. We can still live as if we've not been liberated, as if God is not now our friend. And we can live subjecting ourselves to the power of sin willingly, 
not knowing that we can live in the good and the freedom of what Christ has done for us. There's been a lot of times in my own life that I've felt like I can't stop sinning in a certain area. There's been a lot of times where I felt like, you know, I just don't feel like I'm ever going to overcome this. I keep encountering the same sin in my life, and maybe, maybe you have areas in your life like that too. Maybe you feel like there is some sin or some temptation that there's no way you can overcome. And so the normal human reaction to that is to a few things. It's either to say, you know what, I'm just going to give up trying. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm going to retreat and hide. That's, that's one reaction we can have. Another reaction would be saying that, you know what, um, I'm going to try to legalistically fight this sin on my own power. We can try to do that. Or we can ignore them and act like they don't exist. We can act like the sins aren't really that serious anyway, and so we shouldn't fight them because we don't feel like we can. We don't feel like we have the power. It's a surprisingly common occurrence as I have been a pastor and counseling people over many years and um, since starting working with college students back in 1993, it has been evident that the common challenge of most believers is they don't realize that they have actually been freed from the power of sin. Some Christians, on the other hand, actually think that, you know what, if I'm going to sin anyway and I can't stop it, I might as well just keep on sinning. And, and, and it's that aspect that the Apostle Paul is is helping us see is really absurd. This passage really helps us address how we can change. And it confronts that, that idea that, well, you know what, I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to keep sinning because God's grace is going to abound. And Paul says, no, that's really an absurd idea. And let me tell you, here is how you really work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how you really change in response to the good news of the gospel. It's by considering the fact that you've been united with Christ. And really the main idea that he wants to get across to us is that in our union with Christ... We have died to sin, and now we live to God under grace. In our union with Christ, we've died to the power of sin, and now we live to God under his grace. A couple weeks ago, before Easter, we heard the truth from Romans 5 that that we have received this superabounding grace. Paul said that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And as children of Adam, when we learned that when he sinned, death entered the world and his sin was imputed to us or we were credited as sinners under Adam before we'd ever sinned at all. And that our hope now is that we can be credited with the righteousness of Christ, that Christ's righteousness, whether we did any righteousness or not, has been imputed to us. And just as we are imputed as unrighteous in Adam, So now we're imputed as righteous in Christ and it has nothing to do with our righteousness or law keeping. And then Paul wrote the end of chapter five where sin actually came, the law came in to actually increase the trespass, but where sin abounded, he says, grace abounded all the more. So what does that mean? How should we live? How should we live if grace abounds when we sin? 
Does that mean we should keep on sinning? Some had charged Paul with that. They said that, Paul, you're encouraging license. If you say it's all about grace, then won't people just go out and freely sin because there's nothing to contain them? The law won't keep them. And Paul says, no, the law increases sin. And if you think that we can continue to sin so that grace might abound, you really don't understand grace. There's many today that would say that if if we just emphasize grace, then people are not going to live for God. And, and if, if really that's the way you feel, if that's your argument, if that's where you're living, and you say, you know what, I really have to hold on to all these rules and regulations, those legalistic ideas, because I'm afraid that I'll sin if I don't. Then I'm saying you really don't, you really don't understand your union with Christ to begin with. And Paul says, really, that the first point, the first idea he gets to in this passage is that we can live no longer in sin. We can no longer live in sin because we've been united with Jesus. The thing that keeps us from sin is our understanding that we have been united with Christ, that we've been made one with Jesus Christ. And we can see that in verses one through five. Back in the last dynasty in the Russian Empire, there was a monk named Rasputin, and he taught that we are saved by repeatedly sinning and repenting. He said that those who sin most receive the most forgiveness and experience the most joy, and so to experience the most joy in your Christian walk, you must sin the most. And in the end, he, he committed all kinds of heinous evil deeds using the excuse well I'm forgiven and God's grace is there you know none of us all of us know that respution and that idea is really obscene and absurd but some of us can can kind of live there complacent because we don't understand our union with Jesus Christ and what it means and what the effects of it are there's a French philosopher Voltaire he was famous for sharing that same kind of sentiment. He said, you know, God will forgive. That's his business. And so he, he took the forgiveness of God for granted. In the Corinthian church, they were doing some of the same things. They were allowing sexual sins of a really hideous nature. They were allowing an incestuous relationship to go on and kind of treating that lightly because they didn't understand what it meant to be united with Christ and that to unite yourself with that sin is like uniting Christ with that sin. Today, people are still tempted to abuse grace, to be complacent about sin because God extends his grace and he'll forgive. But, but is that how we're supposed to live? Paul says in verse two, look down your Bibles, he says, certainly not or obviously not or by no means. By no means. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul, he grounds our ability to not live in sin by the fact that we have died to sin with Christ. Because to be in Christ means that you have died to sin. He's been making this argument all along that under Adam, we were in sin. We were alive to sin. Sin ruled under us because we were in Adam. But now that we are in Christ, we are dead to sin, the reign, the rule, the influence of sin. You can't live with sin as your continual master if you've died to sin. 
He says, we've died to sin. Sin no longer reigns. Now, that doesn't mean that sin's no longer threatening. But sin's no longer trying to tell us that we must serve it. It's like the slave master who, after the Emancipation Proclamation, had, had, had continued to treat his slaves as if they were still slaves. And the slaves hadn't heard the good news, and so they didn't know, and they were stuck there. And finally, the good news comes to them that they have been set free. That that master really is no longer their master, no matter how he acts, no matter what he does, no matter how he tells them that they must submit, they must obey him, no matter how he abuses them, they don't have to listen. They're free to go. And Paul's using the same kind of terminology, and we'll go into more depth next week, that We've died to the rule of sin. You know, in ancient times, if you owed a great debt and you couldn't repay that debt, they would take you and your family and they would put you into debtor's prison or they would make you all slaves of the person that you owed. And so um, you were doomed for the rest of your life and your family was doomed for the rest of your life to try to repay that debt from prison, but you would never really make enough to repay that big debt. Or if you weren't in prison, you'd be a slave, but the master really would, would never let you go. And the only way to get out of that debt, to be, to be escaped from that debt, the only hope, the only way to get out of that pathetic life of debt would be to die. You would either die in prison or die as a slave. And you might pray for that. Paul is explaining here that we have died to the power of sin. We have died to the obligation to sin. We have died so that we're no longer imprisoned to sin. We were no longer enslaved to sin. And he says, if, you, if you're no longer enslaved to sin, then you really you can't live to sin if you're dead to sin. That's, that's an absurdity. It's a logical contradiction. You can't both be alive to something and be dead to something. And Paul says, you're dead to sin. You couldn't be alive to it. A Christian cannot continue to live a life of sin, to be alive to sin, to pursue sin, because they've died to sin. And look down at verse 3. He gives us an analogy here, and he gives us a confident seal or sign to point back to look in verse three he says don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into christ were baptized into his death what's he doing there he's showing that our baptism is to serve as proof that we were made dead with christ and made alive to him he reminds Christians of what happened when they're baptized. And, and for Paul, he is not aware. There was no category back then for a Christian who became a believer and was not immediately or soon thereafter baptized. There was no such thing as unbaptized believers in Paul's day. And so when he's writing to the church in Rome, there would not have been unbaptized believers. And so he would have tied conversion with baptism both together. It's not an optional extra thing that you choose to do or not do. He assumed every believer would profess faith and then as a sign or a sacrament in response to that would be baptized. And he's saying in your baptism, it is as if when you went down in the water, the Holy Spirit applied the death of Christ to you so that when, when you were made alive, when you were converted, when you were baptized, you became counted and applied as dead it was like you died in your baptism 
It's a sign that your former existence comes to an end and that our old life is buried with Christ. Think about it. If, if, if for me, it's a helpful reminder as I was preparing for the message to remember back to my baptism and remember the time that when I went under the water, what that was a sign of, what that was a sign of was a sign of the Holy Spirit applying the death of Christ to myself. And what does that mean? The, the old self or the old man here is referring to living under Adam or living in Adam. Our old man lived in Adam. We were part of his heritage. We were his descendants, his seeds. We were in Adam. When we died, it's like that very state of being was made dead when we were baptized. That very state of being was made dead. We were counted as dead to living under Adam. And instead, when we were raised to new life, we were raised alive as if we really have a new life in Christ. It's like when you went down the water, you were laid out dead on the slab in the tomb with Christ. That's the graphic nature of the language here. When you were baptized into Christ, it's like you were laid out in the tomb with him. You were completely dead to this realm. You were, you were dead to the realm of sin. You were dead to the power of sin. And when Christ died to sin, is as if you died to sin there with him. And he, he, he connects our baptism, our repentance, our conversion, our baptism in a way that's, that's more than merely symbolic. It's, it's a sacrament or a means by which the death of Christ is applied to us. There's a guy named David Helm. He says, baptism seals us for godliness in this present world. Just, just like when you're put into a tomb and you're made dead, You've already, you've, already, you've already died. You're put into a tomb. Well, your, your, your state is sealed. And so in a sense, baptism seals us for godliness in this present world. He says, an ethical life then is the consequence of the Christian gospel, gospel even without needing to replace or reinsert the law. An ethical life is the consequence. It's the result of the Christian gospel, even without needing to replace or reinsert the law. Our baptism provides sufficient grounds for ongoing godliness. That's what baptism is. It's meant to be a means by which the Holy Spirit mediates our death to sin and our life to Christ. And it's also meant for us to remember and be sufficient grounds to say, no, that's not who I am any longer. Sin no longer has power over me. Look in verse 4. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our baptism marked the end of our old life and it functions like a seal. And he says the reason you were sealed up is so that with Jesus then you could be raised up. We were raised up out of the water as we emerged from the water. It was as if we'd been raised from the dead with Jesus. It's like coming out of the tomb and it's saying that that's what my life is in now. When I went under the waters of baptism, my life was in Adam. But now that I'm coming up of the waters of baptism, I'm declaring and professing and saying that what he has done in me is he has made me alive in him. He's, he's taken me out of the tomb with Christ Jesus. It's 
So it's a glorious occasion to look back and see if, if we have been baptized in Christ Jesus, if we have placed our faith, if we've been converted, then he's made us dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. And his death to sin is our death to sin. Do you believe that is the question. Do you really believe, do you really understand that his death to sin was our death to sin, that sin no longer can hold sway over us? And that when he was raised to new life, that that he gave us that same new life that resurrected Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that though? Are you living like that? And Paul mentions baptism here not to explain so much how it happened that that we are buried with Christ, but that, that it was the mark of being buried with Christ and the mark of being raised to life. And that now we can and we should walk in new life. Look in verse five, he says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He says, if it was just as certain that you were united with him in death, it is just as certain the fact that he is resurrected that you will share in that resurrection life both here and now in the life to come. Does that stir your soul? Do you realize that you have the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? And that right here, right now, you don't have to submit to the power of sin. That he's made you alive. He's enabled you to understand the will of the Father. He's he's made you alive to his desires. He's made you alive to him, to live for him. And that one day, your body too will be resurrected. And you can trust those things because of what we celebrated last week really in Resurrection Sunday. Just as certainly as Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. Do you believe that? Do you see that? He's saying we have freedom from the reign of sin. Even though sin has not been completely removed yet, sin is still around like that old taskmaster telling us, hey, you have to obey me and even though we don't have to obey that taskmaster, we're tempted at times to turn around and say, okay, I'll obey you again. But we don't have to do that. We can be sure that one day we'll be completely resurrected. Not only is is sin no longer our master, but one day sin will be completely done away with. Look down at verses six and seven. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. So not only have we been baptized with him, he's He's getting to the second idea that we've been crucified with him, he says, in in verse six, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul here, he's summarizing what's happened. He says, we've been set free from sin. We can no longer live in sin. Why is it absurd to think that you would continue to sin, to continue to live a life of sin if you have experience the grace of God he's saying that's absurd because we've been set free from sin to live from God to God we've been crucified to sin we've not only been baptized into the death of Christ and raised to life but we've been crucified with Christ and we've been set free to live to God he says the whole reason our old self was crucified was Christ the body of sin wouldn't have power over us and so we wouldn't be enslaved anymore when we place our faith in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our old self living in Adam under sin, it's as if our old self was crucified with Jesus Christ as well. Just as surely as Jesus was crucified, our life 
under Adam was crucified. And we've, we've died to belonging to Adam, to being in Adam. And he says that, and that is so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What does he mean? So that sin wouldn't have any power, that the body of sin wouldn't have power over you. That's what he means, it says brought to nothing. It would have no effect, no influence, no sway over you any longer. You know, if you were a slave under a cruel taskmaster on an island, surrounded by guards, sharks in the water, whatever the, the most desperate situation is you can imagine, and you are there on that island, and you are sentenced to slavery for the rest of your life, and there's no hope of getting out, there's no hope of escaping, and you're tortured day and night, you would probably be discouraged. You might welcome death. You might think it's better off to die. That's the only way I'm be set free from sin. And as Christians, sometimes we live with that same mentality, that attitude, like, I just can't stop sinning, and the only thing that's going to set me free from sin is if I just die. And Paul says, no, you've already died. You've already been crucified. And, and, and you've been crucified so that you can live to Christ, and so don't live as if you still are alive in Adam. Look in verse 7, he drives on the point, he says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. If a slave died under their master, obviously they could no longer, they would no longer be able to obey their master. They wouldn't have an obligation to their master anymore. Their master could yell at that dead body all they wanted, but the body wouldn't obey. That's the graphic imagery that we have here. And Paul says, for what he, someone who's died has been set free from sin. You've been released from the bonds that held you. If we die, we've been declared free. If we've died, we don't have the same master anymore. And then he says, now just as certainly as we've died with Christ, he says, we believe that we'll also be raised with him. We'll also live with him. And then in verse 9, look down there. He says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. What he's saying is that you don't ever have to submit yourself again to sin because you've died to sin once and for all in the death of Christ. When Christ died once and for all to sin, it is as if you died once and for all to the power and reign and rule of sin. If if you have died with Christ, then, then you have once and for all, because Christ died once and for all to sin, you have once and for all time died to the power of sin. Death no longer has dominion over him, it says, and, and because we're in Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. Our faith's secure because we know that Christ died and rose again, and he'll never die again. You know, unlike Lazarus, he was temporarily raised to life and he died again. That must have been... A shocking turn of events for him. Jesus did not die. Instead, Jesus was raised to life, walked the earth, and then ascended in his life to the right hand of the Father, where now he lives continually. And it says that our life is hidden with Christ on high. It is as if we have the same rule and authority and dominion that Jesus has as he is reigning and ruling, we share that same dominion with him as if we were raised when he was raised. But I wonder if we really get that. I wonder if we really think of ourselves that way. He died to sin's authority and he was resurrected to live to the glory of God as verse 10 says. 
And, and when we died in Christ, he, we died to sin's authority and we were raised so that we can actually glorify Christ now, glorify God now. The, the third thing we see in verses 11 through 13 is that the reason why we can no longer live to sin is that we consider ourselves we consider ourselves as in Christ. Paul has moved now from the intellectual to applying that thought process to our lives. We actually have to actively apply that to our lives. He's explaining here how we really change. Okay, it's great information, but it's, it's not gonna do anything unless you take that information that we've been made dead to sin and alive to Christ, and you start to apply it to yourself, and you consider, that's really who I am. I really am dead to the power of sin. I really am alive in Jesus. I really do share in dominion over sin. We reign in life, as we saw in Romans chapter 5. We reign in life over sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. And one day we'll fully reign and fully subdue sin. We can no longer live in sin if we consider ourselves in Christ. You know, there is a way to grow apple trees that is, is not the way that they used to do things hundreds of years ago. I got a, a wonderful apple. Sometimes you get a great apple from the grocery store and you just kind of revel in its delight. It's so, it smells great, it's juicy, it's tasty. And so last year I'm like, I'm gonna save these seeds. These are gonna be great. And you save them and you read about how to, how to plant them and how to, how, to, how to put them in the freezer to make them think that they've died and you dry them out and all that kind of stuff. But then as I was getting ready to plant them this season, I, I read that, oh yeah, by the way, that won't work. It won't work because that apple seeds, that, that's, that's not the tree that it came from. That, that apple tree was created by grafting one tree into another tree. And so you really just can't take the seeds of the apple that you eat and expect to get the same fruit again. That's contrary that it is to nature because it had to be grafted in in order to create that delicious, wonderful, vibrant taste. And Paul is kind of giving us the same analogy. We need to consider ourselves in Christ. But we're not like one apple tree being grafted into another. I think the better analogy might be that we're like poison oak being grafted into an apple tree. And somehow God makes life come out of that as we're grafted into him as, as we are the branch that's grafted into the vine maybe is a better way of putting that or more scriptural way of looking at that. In the same way, we have to consider what's happened in our life. We're not that poison oak tree anymore. We're, we're not that unproductive fruit vine. We are now been grafted into Christ. We are part and parcel with him. We are together with him in a way that is inseparable, in a way that guarantees that we will produce fruit. And that should give us hope. If you have lost hope that you're going to produce fruit as a Christian, you need to consider that you are in Christ. You've been grafted in. You're not that poison oak or poison sumac or whatever you think of yourself as that corrupts everything around them. And Paul's been using this word consider for a while. If you look down in verse 11... He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You must consider yourselves. At the same time, it says, you must credit yourself. 
That word for consider is the exact same word he's been using in Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6. He is using the same word, and the same word that's that, that forensic word, it's that accounting term. You must be credited. You must account yourself. You must reckon yourself. Consider yourself that you are actually in Christ. Consider that. You're counted as that. Count yourself as in Christ Jesus. What he's saying here is appropriate and apply what we already are counted as in Christ to ourselves. And it's only as we're considering our being in Christ that we can live to the glory of God and experience victory over sin. So because we're in Christ Jesus, the implication of that is that we don't have to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Look down at verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. What it means for the Christian to consider ourselves dead to sin is to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. When we think, okay, I'm alive in Christ Jesus, therefore sin does not have to reign over me no matter how I feel. No matter what I think, when I feel like these desires will overpower me, I have to believe the truth. I have to tell myself the truth. It's preaching the good news, the gospel, to yourself in the midst of confronting and combating sin. Because we're in Christ, We don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We don't submit ourselves to its passions or desires. Sin and death doesn't reign over us any longer. But he's saying in this interim, we actually remain in these mortal bodies, but don't get confused. You're actually in Christ. So, But while you're in here in this mortal body, you're going to face sin, but don't let it reign over you. Don't believe it. Don't give in to sinful desires just because you're mortal. And then he tells another imperative to us in verse 13. If you look down your Bible, it says, Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And that word for instruments there, it's, it's the same word as weapon. Don't present yourselves as a, as a weapon for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons or instruments for righteousness. You once were fighting for the devil. You were fighting against God, whether you realize that or not. You once, your body, your members, your intellect, your emotions, your speech, your actions, your members, in that sense, they were were being presented as instruments for unrighteousness, weapons against God. That's what we were. That's who we used to be. We used to be like we were, we were weapons in the hands of the devil for unrighteousness. But he said, don't, don't do that anymore because you've died to that leader. You've died to that ruler. You're not in that army anymore. You've been delivered out of that demonic army of the kingdom of darkness. And now you've been brought into the kingdom of life in Christ Jesus. And so don't go back and act like you have to submit again to unrighteousness. You know, don't go back and try to fight on the wrong side again, is what Paul is saying. Now, God's made you to be an instrument for righteousness, an instrument to reveal his righteousness, his goodness. We're under the loving rule of grace. He says, so don't present our members back to volunteers, weapons to be used against God. Consider ourselves as in Christ. An old guy named John Calvin once said, he says, though through baptism, 
Christ makes us sharers in his death that we may be engrafted in it. And just as the twig draws substance and nourishment from the root to which it's grafted, so those who receive baptism with right faith truly feel the effective working of Christ's death in the mortification of their flesh or the putting to death sin together with the working of his resurrection in the vivification or the making alive of the spirit. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Don't let sin reign over you. It doesn't have to reign is what he's saying. Don't present your body to be used as a weapon for the wrong side. But present your body as members to God, as instruments for righteousness and saying, God, because I am now your instrument, use me, Lord. And if you, if you understand your union with Christ, let, let, me, let me encourage you. If, if you're being tempted to sin and in that moment you remind yourself and you meditate on, you understand the fact that, wait a minute, I'm actually dead to the sin. I really don't have to obey the sin. I don't have to say yes. But not only that, I'm united with Christ. I'm married with Christ in a sense. I'm so closely united with him that I am one with him. I'm in Christ Jesus. You're not gonna wanna sin. And that's what he's telling us to do, is to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to Christ. Present every aspect of who you are, he's saying, as, as instruments or weapons for righteousness and continually, in, continually enlist or volunteer our thoughts, our emotions, our, our actions, our words as weapons to be in service of the new king. And there's this constant process of actively choosing not to offer our members as, as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead to offer our members as weapons of Righteousness. And it's a continual process that we can carry out the whole time precisely because we're dead to sin and alive to God. Look down at verse 14. He says, for sin, or because. We can do this, we can fight, we cannot present our members as instruments of unrighteousness, we can present our members as righteous instruments to God, because or for, he tells us why. He grounds it in the imperative. I mean, indicative, I'm sorry. He grounds it in the fact that of what Christ has done. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will have no dominion over you. There was a moment in the book, or if you haven't read the book, the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, there's this character named Edmund, and he's one of the sons of Adam. And he he betrays his siblings and he goes to this kingdom of the white witch and as he's coming into the courtyard, he sees this very strange phenomena and this courtyard is filled with all of these stone statues that look very lifelike, that look exactly like various animals or creatures and they're, but they're, they're caught in mid-action and he can't believe how lifelike they look but they're stony, they're dead here in this kingdom of the white witch. He doesn't understand it at all and Later on, he understands that those statues are actually have been trapped and entombed in stone by the dominion, by the power of that white witch. And he sees a few creatures more get added to that number. And so the courtyard is really full of these creatures. And, and really, Edmund is considering that's probably where he's going to end up as well. But there's a wonderful point where 
after Aslan the lion, the hero in the story, he dies on this stone table and the stone table is cracked and he becomes alive again and the two sisters, Susan and Lucy, they they ride on his back and they ride to deliver people from the kingdom of, or creatures from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the white witch and they race, and the first place they get to is the courtyard, and Aslan, he breathes on these stone statues, and as he does, they become alive. They become alive, and they're no longer under the dominion, the rule of the white witch. And now they can live life. They can be who they were originally created to be, now that they're no longer under the white witch's dominion. They've been set free, they've been made alive, they're the blood of Aslan now, the breath of Aslan is flowing in them. And, and that's the picture here. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under the law but under grace. You've been set free. You've been set free. Sin's power has been broken over you. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. It, sin no longer has dominion over you. Death no longer reigns over you. Now you're under the rule of grace. And so in light of our union with Christ, death and life, we can and actively must consider that because we have life in Christ, we can live to him. We can actively carry out and obey and please him. And and let me tell you, if you were one of those creatures in that fabled story, you would rejoice and want to live the life you'd already been given. That's the effect for us. We're, if you understand your union with Christ Jesus, if you understand that you're not under the dominion of sin anymore, but you are now in grace, it's gonna give you joy. You're gonna want to live for him. For those who place their faith in, in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we already have Jesus as our Lord. The stone has been broken. We're now been made alive. Sin's no longer our master. It won't ever change again. The power of sin has been put to death. And now Paul's come full circle again and he's saying that no, superabundant grace, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to more sinning. How could it? Instead, it can't rain under you. You're under grace. And so in light of our new life and being under the active reign of sin. He's, he tells us, let's actively seek to stop submitting to sin and let's instead live to the glory of God. I want to, as I close, share a quote and then a song with you and then we'll sing the song. There's an old guy named Jeremiah Burroughs and he wrote, he says, from him, Christ, as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggling and endeavors and vows and resolutions as it comes flowing to them from their union with him. Do you understand that your sanctification doesn't come so much from your struggling, from your vows, from your endeavors, from your resolutions, but it comes as you consider and understand and apply the fact that you have a union with Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead and ask a band to come up, and we're going to close with a song. And I want you to, if you're struggling with sin, or you feel like you're trapped in sin, or maybe you're not yet a believer, 
and you want to experience that new life in Christ Jesus. We need to consider ourselves dead with Christ Jesus and then alive with him. Dead in his burial, alive in his resurrection. The song I want to sing is, There is love that came for us, humbled to a sinner's cross. You broke my shame and sinfulness. You rose again victorious. Faithfulness none can deny through the storm and through the fire. There is truth that sets me free. Jesus Christ who lives in me. No beginning and no end. You're my hope and my defense. You came to seek and save the lost. You paid it all upon the cross. You are stronger. You are stronger. Sin is broken. You have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. So let your name be lifted higher. Be lifted higher. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.